Before we start, I want to warn our listeners that this episode contains descriptions of domestic violence. Okay, let's start the show. Well, we know, first of all, the federal laws are really not enforced. People, people had no idea what was happening in my home. These offenders are not able to purchase new guns, but they're actually not required to surrender the guns that they already have. I think it is incredibly important that we face up to the issues of domestic violence, homicide, and guns. Welcome back to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Last time, we looked at how ideas about masculinity influence violence and why boys and men may be more likely to turn to guns as tools for solving their problems. Today, we're going to talk about the overlap between gun violence and violence against women. There's an interesting breakdown between men and women when it comes to homicides. Men are more likely to be killed by an acquaintance or perhaps a stranger. But women are more likely to be killed by someone they know intimately. A spouse, an ex, someone they're dating, someone they have a child with. These are the men killing women. The homicide of women boils down to a domestic violence problem. But I should add that domestic violence is kind of an old-fashioned term. The newer term, intimate partner violence, refers to those same controlling behaviors, physical, sexual, and emotional violence, but includes people who might not currently be living together. Intimate partner violence is a problem anywhere it happens, but it's especially urgent here in America. About 1,500 women die from intimate partner violence every year in the U.S. That's more than anywhere else in the developed world. And guns are the most common weapon used in these crimes. The very presence of a gun in a home where there's intimate partner violence increases the likelihood of a homicide by five-fold. Today, we're going to look at how guns increase the risk of deadly violence against women and what can be done to get guns away from abusers before they kill. Jacqueline Campbell studies the relationship between intimate partner violence and guns. She's a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. Domestic violence homicide is the leading cause of homicide amongst women. Women are most often murdered in the context of intimate partner violence, says Jacqueline. But many people don't think of it as a public health issue. In fact, it's um, nine times the rate women are killed by a partner, husband, boyfriend, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend. Nine times the rate then are killed by strangers. So this idea that the greatest threat to women is that anonymous stranger danger is kind of misguided. It's the people closest to them they may need to worry about. In today's headlines, we worry a lot about mass shootings, etc., not realizing you're much more likely to be killed by a husband-boyfriend than you are to ever be the victim of a mass shooting. In fact, mass shootings, where four or more people are killed, most often occur in the context of intimate partner violence. They generally involve a man killing his partner, children, and other relatives or friends. Jacqueline's research into intimate partner violence and homicide led to the creation of something called the danger assessment. It's a tool that social workers and others can use to screen victims of intimate partner violence, to gauge how serious the threat to their life might be. 
for women, a history of intimate partner violence is the number one risk factor for being murdered. And if a gun is present in the home, those odds skyrocket. What we found is that the when the perpetrator owned a gun, there was an increase in risk of five and a half over and above prior domestic violence. The danger assessment takes several factors and then weighs them based on how strongly they each predict risk. The first one is that gun ownership. Um, the second very strong one was a combination of she had left him after living together, left him sometime in the past year, and he was highly controlling. So that combination is also one of the strongest risk factors. Ruth Glenn is someone who's experienced firsthand the consequences of this deadly combination. Correct. I've been telling my story for over 20 years and feel very, very fortunate to be able to tell my story in, in the hopes that it, uh, it will influence and impact change. Ruth grew up in California. It was her 16th birthday when she met Cedric, the man who would become her husband. He was 19. We went to the same high school. He was in the neighborhood one day and we started talking. The relationship was intense from the start. I think I, I desperately wanted somebody to, to be a part of my life, and um, I'm certain he did as well. But that initial intensity soured into something else. He didn't hit her, but he was controlling. I tell young people in particular um, to trust your instincts, because even before the marriage, I knew something wasn't quite right. Then they got married and moved to Colorado. Both got jobs working as youth counselors. Ruth liked her job, and they were both working overtime to build the life they wanted. We had our son in, in football and baseball, and we had two cars and a lovely home and, um, and uh, you know, bills happened. <laughs> so um, there were times where we would even have two jobs just to, to make sure that we, um, quote-unquote, lived the middle-class dream. From the outside, it seemed like Ruth and Cedric were living that middle-class dream. But immediately upon our marriage is when it got really, really quite bad. Her husband's need to control her only increased. Ruth felt like her husband was all-seeing. Her every move, her every decision, nothing escaped him. Things escalated. Verbal abuse turned into threats against her, against her family, and then physical violence. There was one particular incident where I probably should have went to the hospital. He threw me into a wall, and I... um. I remember not being able to almost literally walk for a couple of weeks. And there was always a gun. I had had the gun pulled on me at least twice. But more importantly, he kept it visible where I could see it. You know, it sat on the refrigerator for years. Ruth says he didn't even have to make an outright threat with the gun. The threat of the gun being in the home and the possibility of what he could do with it was far greater. Then one day, someone said something. She was a supervisor where I worked. And I had called in yet again, um, you know, with some excuse about why I couldn't work. And at this particular time, she pulled me in, and I honestly, I thought I was going to get fired. And uh, she pulled me in, and then that's when she said that to me. She says, I know what's happening. Ruth had kept all this to herself. She and her husband both worked hard to keep the abuse secret from family and friends. Ruth was embarrassed, ashamed. Quite frankly, it was the first time anyone had ever said the words domestic violence to me or that I was 
you know, or had drawn attention to me directly that I had been, I was being abused. She didn't force anything other than to say, I know what's happening to you. I know I'm here if you ever need anything. Um, And it was the start of this other journey that I embarked on. It took Ruth another two years to leave her husband. She knew she had to leave for her sake and her son's. But those two long years were full of anxiety. I knew that if I left, he was going to kill me. I just knew it. But I also knew that it was uh, now not just me. I really had to think about my son. Um, You know, people on the outside said, well, you should have done that from day one. Well, yeah, I should have. And in fact, I did. And it was also part of the reason I didn't leave, as crazy as that sounds. But, you know, you always have to think about what is the safest. Should I go out into the unknown or should I try to figure this part out? Finally, the moment arrived when Ruth decided that the unknown was better than staying. She steeled herself, and she left. I snuck out, quote-unquote, in the dead of night, my son and I. Ruth was out of the house, but she couldn't escape her husband. He found her, harassed her, stalked her. Six months after I left, he kidnapped me and held me at gunpoint for about four hours. I got away. Um, He was um, charged with kidnapping and um, was due to go in court. Ruth got a protective order against her husband. His gun was confiscated, but he managed to get a hold of another one. The week before he was due to go to court, he again found me, um, followed me, shot me, um, left me for dead. He shot her three times. It was quite a miracle. I was able to um, survive that. Cedric went on the run. Ruth lived in fear that he would come back to finish the job. Months later, she got the news. Her husband had killed himself. What was your reaction when you got the news that your former husband had died? Um, the first one was relief because I didn't have to hide anymore. I was in hiding for four months while he was on the run. Um, I didn't have to live in fear. I was always afraid that even if I opened my front door, you know, I'd get shot again. Researchers agree when it comes to preventing homicides related to intimate partner violence, the best thing to do is to take guns out of the equation. But from a legal and enforcement angle, that solution is deceptively simple. If our goal is to remove firearms, is to make firearms unavailable to those people, then doing nothing clearly is not the way to go. April Zioli is a professor at Michigan State University. She points out that even when there's a prohibition on someone buying a gun because they have a criminal record or a restraining order, someone like Ruth's husband, there are ways around it. The catch is that in many states, you can buy a gun from a private seller, someone who, you know, doesn't have a firearms store. They're they're your neighbor. They're the guy down the street. Um, So private sellers in many states don't have to run a background check in order to sell you a firearm. So even if you are prohibited from purchase, if you buy from a private seller in one of those states, there isn't going to be a background check. But some states are taking the steps to make sure everyone who wants to buy a gun undergoes a background check. For example, Michigan has what is called a permit-to-purchase system, where if you want to buy a handgun, you have to go to local law enforcement 
and they'll run the background check. They'll see if you're okay to buy a gun. If you are, you get this permit and you can go and buy your gun regardless of whether it's from a private seller or a licensed firearms dealer. April says this system saves lives. Well, a recent study that I did found that when a state has that permit-to-purchase system in place, there is an 11% reduction in intimate partner homicides. So that's total intimate partner homicides, uh, male or female victims. Um, So that's, that's quite a big reduction. Her research also shows that when abusers are required to turn in their guns, intimate partner violence homicides go down even more. But there's a problem. Take this example. Someone is convicted of domestic abuse. As a felon, federal law says they're not allowed to buy or possess a firearm. But who's making sure they don't still have a gun? No one. Basically, it's an honor system. Everybody needs to coordinate on how this dispossession is, is going to occur. So it can be complicated for jurisdictions to put, this, to put this into place, but some are doing what looks to be a very good job. California in particular. Detectives would go out and would serve that restraining order and would explain the firearm prohibition. You know, this is what the domestic violence restraining order says. I know it's a drag, but you have to turn in the gun. If you don't, these are the penalties for not turning in your gun. And what the research showed was that they actually got quite a lot of firearms you know, from these people. And there was no increase in violence over the generality of serving a restraining order. Okay, so there's a patchwork of state laws regulating the possession of firearms for felons. But what about some nationwide standard at the federal level? There are several problems with the current federal law. This is Michael Siegel. He's a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health. There are two major federal laws that regulate possession of firearms by uh, intimate partner violence offenders. Uh, And the first law basically says that if you are convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, that you are not eligible to purchase or possess a firearm. And the second law says that if you are the subject of a permanent restraining order related to intimate partner violence, uh, that you're also not allowed to own or, or purchase a firearm. Okay, misdemeanor crime of domestic violence or a permanent restraining order for domestic violence, and you can't buy a gun from a licensed gun dealer but you can still buy a gun from a private seller or gun show in states that don't require universal background checks. That's the gun show loophole. And Michael points out that someone with a temporary restraining order is still allowed to buy a gun. This is the most dangerous time for a woman. Uh, It's that period where uh, perhaps she's actually been threatened, and so she goes out to try to get a restraining order. uh, And it's that first 24 or 48 hours that are really critical. And so if the, if the law excludes that period of time, then that's really, you know, excluding the most important and most threatening period of time. Federal law has a narrow definition of who can be a perpetrator of domestic violence. The way the federal law is written, only a spouse or an ex-spouse or someone you've lived with or had a child with counts. That means if you're just dating someone, technically under the law, that intimate partner can't commit domestic violence against you. It's what's called the boyfriend loophole. For women who are dating someone uh, who becomes a threat, even if they get a uh, successfully get a restraining order, 
Uh, and even if that person has has committed violence and is and is uh, convicted of a misdemeanor, that person actually is still allowed to carry the firearm under federal law. So that's a glaring omission. Michael says another major problem with the federal law is how it's enforced, namely that it's not. Federal law can only be enforced by a federal law officer. Unless they have their own laws, states don't have a way to enforce the federal protections, even if they're on the books. There's another solution we haven't talked about, giving women who are victims of intimate partner violence guns to defend themselves. Here's a message to every rapist, domestic abuser, violent criminal thug, and every other monster who preys upon women. That's Dana Lash, an NRA spokeswoman and conservative talk show host. Your life expectancy just got shorter. Because there's a very good chance your next target will be armed, trained, and ready to exercise her right to choose her life over yours. There is no research evidence that a victim having a firearm makes her safer. April Zioli again. What we do find in the research is that when there is a firearm in the house, it doesn't matter who it belongs to, it is more likely to be used by the male intimate partner against the female intimate partner. So just having that firearm around, if your abuser gets access to the firearm, your risk of intimate partner homicide increases by fivefold. So it is not uh, recommended right now with the research suggesting what it does, that victims of intimate partner violence obtain firearms. It doesn't look like it increases their safety at all. Ruth Glenn, the woman who survived three gunshots, doesn't think it's realistic. If you have um, a domestic violence abuser where you may need to think to use a gun on them, do you think that they would allow you the space and time to get the training that you needed to, uh, you know, have you hide a gun? So... You know, as easy as it sounds to say that, um, it's very concerning because I don't think we consider everything. The other problem is finding the will to shoot their attacker. This isn't a stranger we're talking about. This is someone they're very close to. One of the things that we forget about women and victims of domestic violence when they're in this situation, they're not in it because they want the abuse, Right. They're in it because they love somebody. So you're asking them to pull a gun and shoot somebody they love when they haven't left. They haven't even, you know, they haven't left the situation. After her husband's suicide, Ruth kept going. She raised her son. She reestablished a relationship with her mother-in-law. I um, got through that and, and went back to school, which had always been a desire of mine, and kept my job, which I always felt very strongly about. Today, Ruth is using her experience to make a difference. Ruth is the CEO of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. About four years ago, this opportunity presented itself um, as to become the, the uh, leader of this organization, and I grabbed it, and uh, here I am now. What researchers like April, Michael, and Jacqueline have found, and Ruth experienced firsthand, is that to save women's lives, we need to divorce gun violence from intimate partner violence. And to do that, we need to get guns out of the hands of offenders. We need to close the loopholes. We need to act as soon as there's a temporary domestic violence restraining order in place. 
We need to broaden our definitions to include dating partners, and we need state-level laws and enforcement to make this happen. We can't say with certainty that a law would have prevented the attack against Ruth. But research shows that states that do require abusers to hand over their weapons see a significant drop in intimate partner violence-related homicides. Next time, we're going to further complicate the problem of intimate partner violence and gun violence. We're going to bring you the stories of women who've tried to use guns in self-defense against abusive partners and how that played out for them. If you or someone you know is experiencing intimate partner violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Callers can reach someone 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Hotline advocates answer questions, provide safety planning and information, as well as directly connect callers to domestic violence resources available in their local calling area. All calls to the hotline are confidential and anonymous. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by The Blue Dot Sessions. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.